Welcome to Positive Talk Radio. Our goal is simple, to explore evolving ideas one conversation at a time. So stay with us as right now we present. We've got a great show for you today. If you grew up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, in that era, um, we've got, we've got a, a gentleman that we're going to be talking to for the entire hour who grew up in the 40s, 50s, 60s, obviously through 2023, because he's here, and he sits right there. His name is Dr. Otto Stallworth, and he is a medically trained doctor. He was a Hollywood agent. He was a restaurateur, which is near and dear after my heart. I love, I love the, the restaurant business. Um, he was a personal manager. He discovered... Um, the taste of honey he worked in as an as an actor and as a casting director and he did all kinds of all kinds of stuff and i'm looking at this here and by the way you know you've met danny glover oh yes i did in fact he was a partner in my uh, restaurant that opened in 99 uh, he was he, a he's a he's an awesome dude and and yeah, he, is, he is a very nice person <clears throat> oh that's good very a lot of a lot of uh um films that i just adore um he was in so yeah you know it was a french fry restaurant specialized in fresh cut french fries and and the unique thing about it was number one it was fresh cut not frozen like most restaurants and number two we had a bunch of dipping sauces we had about 30 dipping sauces and the sauces were named after uh, uh, movies or rock rock groups or whatever. So we had a sauce dedicated to him called Lethal Weapon. Uh, <laughs> that's one of the, one of the greatest Christmas movies of all times. So no, I'm kidding. Yes, yes, and it was around the time Lethal Weapon two or three was coming out, so it, it worked. And it was a very spicy sauce and a very hot sauce, and and it was one of our more popular sauces actually. And yeah. just just as an aside, mm -hmm. the the pre preparation that you go through with fresh potatoes versus the frozen potatoes is completely different, because if if they're not handled correctly, they can get real soggy real fast. It's completely different, and 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 that kind of when I started the restaurant, we modeled it after the uh, the French fry restaurants in Belgium. You know, where on every corner, like on every corner, there's a coffee shop. On every corner, there's a French fry place, and they wrap it in newspaper like a cone, and they use mayonnaise-based sauces on it. And it was after a trip there that I uh, got the uh, the idea, and there was actually a place in Canada. I think it's probably still in Canada called New York Fries that did sort of the same thing. So, uh, so the the sauces were so. After going there, we came back and we created all these different sauces and. Uh, um, uh, it was a, um, the, the problem with fresh potatoes is that it's not available all, all season, every season. I learned this after we started the restaurant, not available every season. And there's some, um, there's spoilage. Yeah. And, uh, so you have to, you know, be very careful about, uh, your inventory. So there was a reason that McDonald's in the 19, I think sixties, early 1960s, they switched from fresh potatoes to frozen potatoes. In fact, the potatoes are not really potatoes. They're kind of uh, synthetic potatoes. It's a hybrid. There's a reason for that. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. and when you're talking about the restaurant business and you know as well or better than I do that your profit is literally pennies on the dollar. Pennies and on the dollar, and it's a very tough business. Probably yeah. the biggest mistake I've ever made. But I learned a lot. You know, you learn from mistakes. That's a good thing about it. <laughs> no. well, and that, that's the thing because, you know, tell me if I missed anything because you were, you know, obviously you were a medical doctor and you were a, um, a restaurateur, you were a personal manager, you were, um, an, you're an author, and we're going to talk a great deal about the book that you've written and, uh, um, and a bunch of other, and a bunch of other things that you've been, um, that you've done in your entire life. So um, you, 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 do you ever think back, think back into the mists of time, back in the forties, fifties and sixties, when times were not easy, when you grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, I believe. And uh, 
and especially in the '60s with the uh, the riots and and the Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and all of all of those things. That must have been a very very difficult time uh, to be growing up. And you were in your 20s and 30s during that time. No, actually, I was in my uh, I was like five or six years old. I was 10 years old when um, when the bus uh, strike started in Montgomery. Actually, yeah, I was 10 years old. And so that was kind of the start of the civil rights movement. <clears throat> when in Montgomery, Alabama, you know, Rosa Parks, you heard, know that story where she oh. refused to give up a seat and they started the bus boycott. We had actually attempted bus boycotts in Birmingham uh, during that time. And it was hard to get, you know, the older, the older people, there was the younger people who were more active and wanted to do this. Older people were more protective about their jobs and about, uh, uh, you know, not being approached by, uh, by, uh, by their bosses and whatnot. And so, so it was really a youth movement. So it, the movement failed until King came to Birmingham, which was around 19, in the 60s. Yeah. So when was the, the, bus, bus, uh, the bus boycott uh, done? Or was that in the 50s? It was in the 56, 55, 56, something like that. That's when it started in Montgomery. It was very effective. Yes, indeed. And and and, and through the 60s, it, I, I imagine now. I know the the older folks were not as as um, interested in activism as the younger folks. Was that right. you think partially because of how they grew up in times when there and it is documented that there were lynchings and there were, there was beatings and there was, there were, do you think that maybe they were scared because of what they'd grown up with? They were afraid of that. And also their livelihood, most of them worked, you know, for, uh, had white, white uh, bosses and oh, white yeah. jobs and they were afraid of losing their jobs and uh, economic kind of things. And the younger people were totally insensitive to that. You know, the young students, they just wanted the right, you couldn't understand. I mean, there's a story in my book that addresses the, this uh, uh, water fountain thing, white water fountain. I was six years old when I went to a, uh, uh, a department store called Loveman's Department Store. It's one of the largest department stores and more uh, plush department stores in Birmingham at the time. And uh, my mother took me there to get a photograph that was on sale, take a, a eight by 10 black and white photograph. And she uh, and, and 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 black people weren't allowed, or colored people as we called them at the time, were not allowed to uh, to try on clothes. If you tried on clothes, you bought it, you, you owned it. So so she uh, she arranged with one of her patrons. One of her she was a beautician. One of her beautician patrons worked there and got her into the uh, dressing room, uh, uh, the employee dressing room, to try on clothes before she purchased them. She left me outside sitting in a chair and I saw this water fountain, white water fountain, which always looked a lot better than the colored water fountain, which was in the basement. And it, uh, you know, was on a wall with a gold trim and, you know, it looked really pretty. And they had a, a lower water fountain for kids. And I was six years old at the time. So I thought I started thinking at, you know, a six-year-old mind, that there's something special about this water. I mean, why is it white only? So that's when I... Um, I uh, got over, went, went to the water fountain after a few maneuvers and tasted the water. And uh, my mother grabbed me just as I tasted the water and uh, pulled me away. I had to explain to people staring and whatnot. And, and I remember shouting, it tastes like the colored water, mommy. It tastes like the colored water. You know, I said, that. <laughs> and I was, because I was expecting it to taste like um, lemonade or, or soda or chocolate milk or you know, something good and wonder why it was white only and so that was that was the beginning of uh, of sort of uh, trying to analyze this thing and and, and what it meant to white only uh, color only why was it white only why was it color only and so forth because even in that same on the way to the water fountain on the way to get the photos we passed a, a counter a food counter with about 10 bar stools. And, um, and also it was, I saw the sign that said white only. I'm trying to figure out what's, what's different about, what's great about white only food? Why is it different? Because this is a six-year-old trying, trying to figure these things out. And so that was, uh, that was an enlightenment in tasting the water. I mean, it, it, uh, for that moment, I was satisfied with the, with the experience. 
But, uh, you know, and, and 10 years later, not, not 10 years later, about six years later, that food counter that I mentioned, uh, uh, they had um, sit downs and whatnot, and it became uh, later, you know, integrated and whatnot as those laws were found to be invalid. I want everybody who is a little bit younger to think about what um, uh, Dr. just said is that there was a time in this country not that long ago when if you were a certain color or a certain race that you were not allowed to do things that were commonplace for other folks. And this was not, we're not talking about 300 years ago. We're talking about less than a hundred years ago, 75 years ago, that it was like that in this country. And uh, I, I, really want people to get the fact that people who say, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't that they were, you know, we're all, it, it was, it was, it was a big deal because you were not allowed to do, I uh, was just like Jackie Robinson when he was uh, playing for the um, um, uh, 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 Brooklyn. Yeah. He was not able to eat in the same restaurants as the white players. Right. And, uh, I went. You, there was a story that came out um, about Jackie Robinson that there was a um, a death threat, and people were going to uh, uh, and and so the FBI came and said we got to be careful because somebody is threatening to shoot um, on the field um, mm-hmm. to shoot him, and one of the, one of the players <laughs> they were in the locker room and they're deciding what to do, and he said, "Well, you know." If we all wear number 42, they won't know who he is. Um, hmm. And everybody laughed and, and stuff like that. But so it was a, but it was a interesting, it was, it, I say interesting, but it's not an interesting time. It was a horrible time for a sizable portion of our population. And I, I don't want people to forget that. And your book speaks to that to a great de- degree. So can we talk about the book now? Yes, yeah, sure. The, um, the book title, uh, I'll I, I address that first because I get asked that question a lot. You know, how did I come up with that title? Because uh, it's Are You a N Word or a Doctor? And that came up because um, in, in 1970, well, I went to all black everything, all uh, what we call colored at the time, all colored elementary, uh, kindergarten, elementary school high school, then I went to predominantly black, about 95% black um, college, and then a, uh, a predominantly black uh, medical school. Out of a class of 80, uh, there were eight, eight white students. And then uh, after graduation, I went to Ohio, Case Western Reserve Hospital in Ohio, to do my internship. And I was the only black out of about 30 interns and residents. And uh, just to make a long story short, not go through a lot of detail, but in an encounter with a patient there, a patient asked me that question. And uh, and that was a shock. And and so that was, that turned out to be, you know, when I, when I, when I, uh, I joined a, a writing group and the writing group was writing a memoir and that's how I ended up writing a memoir. And they say, you write from memory. So the first thing I remember, the first story I wrote was that story because it never left my mind. And interesting enough, I was always on guard for that question and never happened again. I never had uh, an encounter with someone using that word towards me as a doctor or, or anything else, uh, nothing in the medical world that ever happened again. But I was prepared for it and that experience never left my mind. And so that was the first story I wrote. And the second story I wrote was just the other story I just told you about, about the water fountain, because mm-hmm. I never got that either. You know, that was a, a, a big awakening when I found out that there was no difference in the water. You know, I mean, to my six-year-old mind, I'm thinking it must be some great water if it's for, they want to keep it just to themselves. You know, it must be different. Well, you know? and, and not only that, your drinking fountain was in the basement. In the basement, yeah. And didn't look very nice. It was uh, dirty and, you know, chip, chips in the, in the enamel and all kinds of stuff. It was uh, not well kept. And this was a plush, this was like the most plush uh, uh, department store in Alabama at the time. In fact, uh, one of the things that stood out was that they had an escalator. They were the only store in the state of Alabama at the time, and probably, and so therefore the first store 
to have an escalator, and it only went up one floor, went up and down one floor. So that so that made that made them stand out. So this was a, and, and that store never, in fact, that store was so resistant to when 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 the laws were passed in the '60s that made segregation illegal and whatnot. Uh, the uh, Loveman's department store was uh, resistant to making that change, and so they ended up uh, closing sometime in the '70s because they refused to comply with the with the laws. But now that, you know, I was in Birmingham about two years ago and I went to Lowman's to check it out. And now it's a, it's been gutted out. It's, it's still a beautiful building, but it's a, a food court. You know, you go in and it's a huge, huge uh, space open and there's food courts, food all around. And and uh, so it's still being used, that building, but it's no longer the department store. Now I got to ask you, because you were a doctor for how many years? 45 years in medical practice, uh, yeah. And predominantly, were you practicing in the north or in the south? Uh, I practiced in, in Los Angeles those 45 years. Okay. because And the reason I ask that is because there is, in this country still, I, I worked for a poultry company out of Arkansas, and I'll tell you that there still is um, a racial difference in how people are treated depending upon which geographical region that you're in. And predominantly in the South, uh, people, uh, black people have got a diff more difficult time than they do in like Washington state or California, where we're considered the left coast and we're a lot more liberal than, than some. So I was just going to ask if you were a doctor in the South, let me ask you this way in mm -hmm. the 70s when you became a doctor could you have practiced in the south or would there have been resistance by a segment of the population that would say i'm not going to be treated by a black man i could have practiced in the south mainly because at that point uh during the 70s you know we you uh black phys black physicians only treated black patients you know, our colored at that time we used the word colored. Colored physicians only treated uh, colored patients, and, so, and they did, and they did that so to avoid that particular problem. Yes, there may have been a problem, but interestingly enough, um, you know, I went to Howard University undergrad and uh, pledged a fraternity called Kappa Alpha Psi, and two of my three of my uh, two of my fraternity brothers. It was three of us there, four about six of us that came there from Birmingham. Uh, but two of those students became the first black uh, students to enter the University of Alabama Med School in 1966. Now, this that was only three or four years after George Wallace had stood in the in the Alabama University of Alabama uh, door, saying segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. This was only only three or four years later. And they, they, and it, it was done with, and, and in that case, you know, you had the National Guard, you had, uh, you know, uh, uh, somebody there from, from President Kennedy's uh, staff, uh, all trying to get these students in. It was a big deal. And it had been attempted once before in 1956 by a lady named Arthurine Lucy. Uh, and then now we're back up to, I think it was 62 when they brought in the National Guard, when Kennedy federalized the National Guard and they had to bring the National Guard in just to get these two students in, uh, Vivian Malone and James, uh, I forget James' last name, but it was those two students uh, that they had to uh, escort in and when he stood in the courthouse door. And yet four years later, uh, these two medical school students integrated the University of Alabama Med School with no fanfare at all, no publicity, no nothing. They kept it very quiet. Also, in that same class at Howard, the first dental student, black dental student, entered the University of Alabama in that same year, 1966. So it was interesting how those three things happened so quietly. And, uh, and those students got no recognition for making that achievement of cracking those barrels, barriers. But um, but uh, it it was quite a it was a big uh, big uh, moment because even some schools in the uh, at that time some schools in northern states had not yet had a black student. Yeah, so it was a, a monumental kind of uh, thing. Well, still in 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 those days, you yeah. you went there were uh, black universities 
And that's where, you know, quote unquote, that's where black people go. Is the yeah, black 70 percent of the uh, 70, maybe more, 70 to 80 percent of the black physicians in the United States were trained at uh, either the Howard University Medical School or Meharry Medical College. Those are two predominantly black uh, medical schools. And they put out about 70% of the of the physicians that are in the, black physicians in the United States. Even to this day, I think they're still up around 70%. So you've done so many things in your life. What, what decided you that you wanted to become a doctor? When I was, uh, you know, in Birmingham growing up, um, your minister, your teachers, uh, your your parents, friends, everybody always asks the same question. What do you want to be when you grow up? I mean, everybody asks that question. So you have to have an answer. And uh, when I was about six or seven, one of my classmates' uh, father was a doctor. And um, I went, uh, went to his office with him and I saw him working and saw the office and saw people talk to him and the doctor saw him, you know, talk to his patients. And that's when I decided I wanted to be a doctor. So my answer for that question, starting at six or seven years old, when someone asked, what do you want to be when you grow up, was a doctor. And I just never wavered from that uh, that answer. I, I, I just, uh, the more I learned about being a doctor, the more uh, more I was uh, uh, destined, you know, determined to, to, to do that. Well, and, and thank you, because I it's almost like you were in the military. It's like, thank you for your service, and thank you for your service to humanity, because yeah. because it wasn't easy. You you um, went through medical, you went through school and medical school, and but you still were in a segregated, segregated profession, because there yeah. are places you couldn't work and things you could not do, um, and that, that was such a shame. Yeah, and you know, it's like a double... Um... It's like double work because just just going through just going through the the trauma of med school, which is really very demanding. I mean, in college you have classes three days a week, maybe two days a week sometimes, and you can do things. In medical school, you're in class from eight in the morning till you know six, five or six, and then you got you know six or eight hours of reading and studying to do. So you're really just totally engrossed into this medical world. And then uh, I, I, I when you get to the last two years, you're doing the, uh, uh, you're seeing patients and you're doing, uh, you're on call and see patients and whatnot. And of course, the internship and residency. So, so in addition to those things, you know, but what tends to happen in the context of that trauma, especially when I got to, uh, to, to an integrated situation, you know, like it, 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 uh, in, in, uh, in Ohio, and then later I came to California at UCLA to do my residency in anesthesiology. You're, you're so con so consumed by the the rigors of making it, of learning this stuff, that 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 kind of overpowers uh, any kind of racist thing that goes on because you st start getting respected for what you know, because everybody wants to know somebody that knows something. You know, if, you, if sure. I'm saying it correctly. So, so uh, because of the trauma that, that's just involved in the rigors of going through this training, the 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 uh, and, and 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 I'm not saying that there's no racism, but the racism gets put over here, and and you're more focused on saving this patient's life, or curing this patient, or stopping the bleeding, or you know, and all that kind of stuff. So it kind of kind of overshadows everything else. Well, it's kind of pretty cool when you're busy and you keep everybody busy enough, they don't have time to hate people because right. they need to. Not to interrupt you, but when I started my internship, my residency was at Harbor General Hospital that UCLA ran, and I had went to the UCLA campus. But that Harbor General Hospital was flooded with trauma. We had gunshot wounds, stab wounds. So when you were on call, you were busy 24 hours. In the operating room, 24 hours, the whole 24 hours you were on call, you were in operating room. So, so busy that just by routine, you had the next day off because you needed to sleep and recuperate. You didn't have to come in to the hospital for training or anything. You got that day off to recuperate from that 24 hours of working. And most of the work was done with gunshot wounds, stab wounds, automobile accidents, you know, uh, cracked heads, you know, uh, craniotomies this and that. And then during the day, you flooded with all kind of uh, cancer surgery and this and that. It was, um, 
I think that first two months of residency was probably my toughest time in medicine. Uh, and, and it prepared you for what was to come in terms of uh, private practice, because private practice was a lot uh, less traumatic than being in a, in a, in a hospital. Uh, with a tra- it was sort of like a trauma. We didn't have, we didn't separate them as trauma hospitals in those days, but it was basically a trauma hospital. And that's amazing. That that's an amazing story right there. I did want to mention that we are talking with Dr. Otto E. Stallworth. He's written the book. Are you a N word or a doctor? Um, and uh, I love the title of the book. <laughs> I imagine that uh, it it um, really reaches out to people and makes them pick up the book and say, "What is this about?" Because yeah. they got a, a pretty good idea. But uh, and the title came up because that was an actual patient that uh, walked up to you and said, "Are you a doctor or you know?" So, <laughs> uh, so it's it's it's, uh, it's really interesting. How's the book doing, by the way? The book is doing uh, well, not as well as I would like it, and uh, and it's one of the reasons is, is because of uh, you know most, uh, in my opinion, is that you know when you have a memoir by someone famous, and there's so it seems like every, it seems like as soon as I put my book out, everybody wants to write a book. You're hearing about uh, yeah, I just heard the other day that Will Smith's wife is putting out a memoir, oh, <laughs> you know, tomorrow and. And you know you got Obama's wife, and you got this, but so and Prince Harry, and so those kind of uh, the famous people uh, sell so many books just on the basis of their name, which is one of the reasons I did pick that title. I have to be honest with you. Uh, another reason, uh, other than it was the first story I wrote and the first thing that came to my mind, it was it was I, I figured you know who, if I said Doctor Stallworth's life or Doctor Stallworth's. Uh, travels or whatever it wouldn't be uh it's not like saying uh denzel washington's uh life uh, stories you know what i mean right it, it had no name so i had to figure figure out some way of a title that would get attention and uh and when i finished the book and i looked at the chapters because this was the name of one of the chapters i said well this one should get some, get a little attention i'm sure your publicist liked the title because it's like oh that'll get some attention yeah. The thing is, I, w- I was banned on um, uh, Facebook and Amazon from advertising initially, but um, I wrote a letter explaining why uh, I thought it was, uh, I proposed to use that word. They wanted me to substitute other words for it, but I said it, it took away the impact of the situation if I said, uh, are you a black man or a doctor? I mean, that that doesn't have the same impact, or, or, or doesn't show the same intent. Uh, the shock. Why would I be shocked at, at that statement? You know, I mean, it's still a, a questionable statement, a question, but it doesn't cause the same kind of emotion from me as as uh, or from anyone as uh, as using the the N word. Exactly. Yeah. And that and right now, <clears throat> and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. Was this a white guy who asked this? Yes. Or was, yeah. Okay. Yes. That, that, why? Why is that not surprising? Um, but you know you've done a like in your memoir you've done a lot of different things um you've seen a great deal of history your the time that you've been on this planet has the earth has changed and the world has changed and people have changed more than at any time in in my opinion in the history of the world yes you know um I'm just kind of uh, a lot of things that, that that have occurred. I didn't write about necessarily, but I was at a play the other night, and I advise anybody to check this play out. It's called Fetch, Fetch and Ali, or Fetch and Cassius, and it's about uh, Step and Fetch it and Cassius Clay uh, meeting each other uh, just before the Sunny Liston fight, and uh, and and it kind of gives. Um, you hear it from Stephen Fetcher that, you know, the fact that he was acting and, and it was only acting that a, job, a, a, a person could get at that time and all that, because at first there was conflict. But the reason I mentioned that story is because in there he talks, uh, there's a character, his first wife, Sonja, uh, Sonja Ali. As, and, and, I'm, and I was in Chicago right around the time that I went to Chicago. I don't know if you read the uh, the book, there's a story in there about when I go to Chicago, uh, 
and I've been there three days, and I get a job as a bus driver. But I don't know anything about Chicago. I've never been to Chicago before. I don't know where the south side is or the north side is or, or anything. And um, But on that same trip, uh, when, I, when I was there driving a the bus, and I didn't write about this in any of the stories, I, maybe I should have, I, uh, my, um, my roommate who I went to Chicago with, his mother had uh, adopted Sonja, and I, I can't recall Sonja's maiden name, but she had adopted Sonja. So when I met her, she was Sonja Ali, and uh, and so we were very close. And they had just they had just uh, broken up because she she was uh, she wore mini skirts and boots and earrings and lipstick and all the stuff that uh, um, a black Muslim woman wasn't supposed to do. So. Uh, uh, the leader of the um, Black Muslims uh, broke that relationship up. And I met her right around the time. So at this play the other night, this character was there, and, and and it was like I was reliving something. I said, boy, I wish I had remembered this part of it and wrote about it. I did think about it, but I never, I didn't write about, uh, about my encounters with her, where she, because it just happened, she was constantly talking about her experience in, uh, uh, with Ali, and uh, and what had happened, but it, it, um, and then in Chicago, you know, the funny spot. Did you read any any part of the book? I've I've read snippets of it, not a lot. Okay, we uh, next time you you look at it, read. Uh, I forgot what chapter it is. But read the one that's called the bus, the bus experience, and uh, LSD. I think it's called. <laughs> glasses on it to to uh, find that. Uh, and here's the book, by the way. Anybody? Yes, yes, indeed. It's on. It's on the going to be on the uh, cover of the of the podcast that we do, and it's on uh, YouTube right now, and and uh, and uh, it'll be in all the notes. Uh, yeah, it's called the best the LSD experience. Yeah, and uh, I'm laughing because because I drove a bus for twelve years. I had this uh, roommate who was a, a law student at the University of Chicago, and uh, white student. And he and his friends were uh, experimenting in uh, LSD, and he introduced me to psychedelic rock. And of course, I introduced him to some of the uh, black music, black R&B music. And um, I won't go into that that story now, but that's uh, that's an interesting story. It, it happened uh, that same summer that I was driving the bus. Of course, I used to get because I'd never been to Chicago, and, and I'm driving the bus. I would get lost, make the wrong turn, uh, and I was, on a I was on a different route every day because I was there to to um, to work for bus drivers that didn't show up or that were on vacation or were late and that kind of thing. So I had a different route every day. I never knew it was all on the south side, but I never knew which one. And it was about ten routes on the south side. And I never knew which one. So I would uh, get asked questions. You know, ask, people ask me directions. I had no idea where anything was. And sometimes they cursed me out. And, you know, it's, I think it was a pretty funny story. I, I can remember reading it in the uh, in my writing group when I first wrote it. And I think that was the biggest laughter that I got in the whole, uh, reading the whole book, at, at least the first, the first version of it. Uh, it's a lot of funny stories in there. And and you brought up a name that I knew kind of from from my youth, but uh -huh. you know that name could not be used today. Um, you you could not use step and fetch it in oh. any manner or form today, like it was then. And that was an actual person who played a role as, and, and it's kind of like the gal that was in Gone with the Wind who won the Oscar, uh, the first black lady to win an Oscar. Uh -huh. uh, that uh, she played a stereotypical type role. That's what Step and Fetch It did, isn't it? Yes, yes. I don't think he ever won an award for it, but yeah. And he was nothing like that character. And I think that's what the play is about. Uh, it shows that he was really acting and he considered himself one of the greatest actors, but it was the only, only, only kind of role that a colored person or a black person could get at, at that particular time. And, yeah, and he was ostracized uh, by by the uh, uh, colored of black community, and uh, especially during uh, when the rise of black power and all that started, black pride, black power, he, uh, they kind of. Uh, so this play is about where 
as Ali got to know him and, and got to see that he was really not this person as portrayed on the screen, uh, he invited him to go to, uh, to, to do a press conference with him and so forth. And uh, I have to look back and see if this press, if what I saw in the play was actually what happened. But um, let's get off the subject a little bit. But it, it was uh, it was just I just saw the play two nights ago. So it's kind of still there in my in my mind. Well, so, when you're talking about a memoir of your life that yeah. happened from the 50s on, uh, basically, um, and it, it covers a lot of did you did you ever see the movie Forrest Gump? Yes. Yes, because um, there is there is a scene in there about how uh, in in Birmingham when the uh, the uh, guard was there and they were helping these girls go into school and and what Wallace did and all that kind of stuff was that was that kind of a did it bring back memories for you was that true to life that or was that hard? No, I don't remember much of the movie because I saw it so long ago. But I remember vaguely remember that that scene that you mentioned. Uh, but anytime uh, I see something like that, it brings back uh, those uh, those memories, you know. So, so I'm sure at the time I saw it, it did. Uh, yeah, definitely. And, and in fact, when I, um, you know, um, when I traveled to, to Washington D.C., there's a lot of people from Birmingham, including one of the sisters of one of the girls who was uh, one of the four girls killed in that bombing. In 1963, oh, yeah. <clears throat> I knew all of those girls, and I knew their parents, and I knew their sisters and brothers, and um, and in Birmingham we had sort of—I mean, in D.C. we had sort of a Birmingham reunion because there's a lot of people that that have moved oh, yeah. there. And at that time, Condoleezza was in the uh, was in the White House when I was there, um, um, and so we had a like a Birmingham kind of party, and uh, and and that subject came up about how we. How did we go through this? Um, how did we have such a normal, what seemed like a normal childhood during a time when there was all this stuff going on? You know, the, there were uh, uh, violence, there was demonstrations, there were, you know, uh, segregation, there was, you know, all of these things. And nobody had really had the answer. The closest answer that they came up with was that it was our parents. Our parents kind of protected us. The other thing is that because it was so segregated, you know, Martin Luther King had said that Birmingham was the most segregated city in the, in the United States. And because it was so segregated, you rarely ever saw uh, white people other than the bus driver or on TV. So, and on TV, you know, we had these little black and white TVs. The screen was about this size. You know, very small, within a gigantic cabinet, but that's that's small. So you're looking at this TV, and 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 on that TV, white people look like white paper. You know, like a uh, typing paper. And so, when I was on the way to that, the story I write about in the in the uh, in the in the memoir is when I was on the way to to uh, to. Um, to take the photo, you know, I'm, I'm looking out the window and she's telling me to, you know, one of the things she, where she taught me reading, I have to read the signs and, and read the uh, license plates and stuff like this. But also I would see white people because I never saw them in my neighborhood. You know, there was never any, and they only saw them on TV. So I'm looking and I'm, and I asked my mom, said, mom, uh, you know, how do white people tell each other apart? <laughs> and she said, what, what do you mean? And I said, because they're all the same color. You know, in a, in, a, in a colored family, everybody's a different complexion, maybe slightly, maybe a lot. You know, they have a dark-skinned father, light-skinned mother, or, or vice versa, or in between, anywhere in between. And you describe people based on that kind of color. You know, you say, you know, John, he's a little lighter than so-and-so, or darker than so-and-so. And so I wondered, how do they tell each other apart? How do the white people? I mean, that's how, how naive I was about uh, how segregated we were from any, anything white. You know, we had, you know, I rarely saw white people except on TV uh, or if, uh, if you saw a policeman or if you saw a bus driver, you know, jobs that we couldn't have. Well, so, I'm, yeah. I'm willing to bet that you can tell me exactly where you were when you heard about Dr. King's death. I know exactly where I was. I was in a, I was, a, I was in my um, sophomore year at Howard University. I was in a chemistry class. 
uh, and uh, a student, a female student came in, the professor who wrote the chemistry book that we were using, he was a very, uh, he was up there drawing all kinds of formulas and stuff. And she walks in and he kind of dismisses her. And then she goes over and she whispers something in his ear. And he turns around, he rolls his sleeves down, he's gathering his books, and he says, uh, President Kennedy has just been assassinated, class dismissed. And that was it. And we were like in just shock, you know, total shock. Now, <clears throat> the, the, um, the, all, the, all the science classes, the biology, pharmacy, chemistry, were all in this area of the campus we call the Valley, because it was a little bit lower than the rest of the campus. And it formed the buildings outlined the whole thing. Well, that quadrangle was full of students trying to figure out what was going on. I, I'll never forget that. And we, we uh, you know, all we had was these um, portable radios, you know, trying to hear what was what was happening and this, that, and other. And uh, so that was a shock. And then I remember going to the, um, I was at the uh, downtown watching the, the funeral procession as it passed. And I can still see the Kennedys uh, dressed in black, Jacqueline, Robert, Ted, walking and the only thing you could hear as they walked by was their foot, footsteps as they hit the uh, as they hit the pavement and it was a very and they were you know of course it was a very sad occasion and a very big shock that was uh that was a shocking occasion where were you at that time oh you were probably well, this was 63 63 i was six years old okay and then the principal i went to a lutheran school and the principal walked in and whispered to the teacher and the teacher turned around, turned to us and said, um, boys and girls, um, the president has been hurt and uh, we're going to all pray for him now. And then they dismissed school shortly thereafter and we went home and, and it was wall to wall. All three channels were wall to wall coverage of, of that for, for the entire three days. And I, I, I was watching TV when, uh, because uh, in, in those days, it was like the Wild West because, you know, in, in those days when when they brought um, um, Oswald out um, and he was shot and killed right there in front of national TV, I was watching that. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and stuff like that. You know, in the 60s was a was a not a very good time. We lost we lost John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy. We lost Martin Luther King. Um, and I think Malcolm X, too. We lost... We lost some really, really powerful people who, if they had lived, my we might be in a different time today. What do you think? I think you, you, you. I think you're correct. There were so many, and and it happened. Seemed like one after another. I mean, like um, Martin Luther King was killed April 26, and then uh, and I you know in, in June, I believe. Uh, no, Martin Luther King was April 26. John, uh, Robert Kennedy was killed in June, like June 4th or something like that. Yeah. And the reason I remember Martin Luther King's death because my father uh, died uh, March 26th oh. of, uh, uh, after a four week, uh, three or four week illness with a, a, a leukemia type disease called multiple myeloma. But he died from a um, pulmonary embolus, which is a blood clot that went to the lung. And um, and I was uh, grieving with my father. I write about this in the book also. There's a chapter on it. I'm grieving uh, uh, about my father's death. And then um, uh, King is assassinated in Memphis. And I'm in school in Nashville. So I had to get back to school because um, when I was visiting him while he was sick, you know, I, was, I had to come back and study for exams and take tests and all this kind of thing. And uh, when I got back to Nashville that, that day, uh, there were fires, uh, there were the National Guard was, had occupied every place there on every corner, you know, and uh, so it was, a, it was a very traumatic year. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, a lot of things happened that year other than that. In fact, later that next summer, that summer, 68, which was a uh, 67 was the summer when I went to Chicago and I drove the bus. 68, I went to Chicago and I worked as a social worker, a caseworker for the Cook County Department of Public Aid. And, and during the Democratic National Convention, which was three months later yeah. in, in, in August, uh, 
the social workers uh, decided to take the day off to go to the convention to demonstrate. And that was a monumental moment for me because I went there with them. Uh, my friend and I, who, who uh, was my roommate in, in, in uh, med school, we were worked on desk side by side. We went there and uh, that was the first time I had seen the police and the National Guard or whatever you want to call them attack white people. Because the 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 the, the predominant, the predominant um, race of the people that were there demonstrating was white, and they came out with the tear gas and these batons and started swinging. I said, "What is going on? This is a this is something different. There's nothing like you know." Because I'd been and seen it what happened in Birmingham when police were attacking black people, but I had never seen the police attack white people, and that put a whole different. Thing I'm trying to figure out what is this about? This is not about race. This is about it's more like a class kind of thing than because it was all about the Vietnam War. Yes, you know, it was, it was the, against the Vietnam War. And Mayor Daley, who was the Richard Daley, who was the mayor of Chicago, uh, decided to use that this force. Uh, and of course, Chicago was hosting the Democratic Convention. That was uh, an awakening. Have uh, you thought about? I mean, the the number of stories that you are either been in and around. Have you thought about presenting your your memoir to a producer to have it turned into a movie? I think it would be make a, a tremendous movie. I've thought about it, and um, and I was actually when I had my uh, books book launch, which was March sixth of this year, March fifth of this year. Uh, I was asked that question uh, by the uh, moderator, who was a director. And I should have said, now, and, and now I remember, I should have said, he asked me the same question you just asked. My answer should have been, yes, do you want to direct it? Exactly. But, <laughs> but I wasn't sharp enough to think that way. And I'm saying, well, yeah, I've, I've given it some thought, blah, blah, blah. And I mentioned, uh, you know, at first, when I first started writing, uh, before I finished the book, I had an agent. And... Um, um, for six months, a uh, female agent. And she wanted me to do, she wanted me, she liked the stories, but she wanted me to, the chapters, but she, because my, my book is unique in the sense that every chapter has a name. Uh -huh. uh, people just do chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. And she was just engrossed with the chapter names, you know, and, and she said, we should make this a, take out all the reflection, take out all of your comments and make it fiction. And I can sell it to Netflix. And I said, well, at that time, I was, you know, not thinking about uh, the monetary approach to it. I'm thinking I'm leaving something for my um, my kids because uh, they don't know anything about me. They don't know what I went through. And they're not really listening <laughs> when I try to tell them, you know, they're, they're into the, 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 you know, the games or the video games or the this or the that on the iPhone or this. So I figure I'll leave something that's permanent. That when, whenever they want to read it, maybe it's 10 years from now, maybe it's 15 years from now, my grandkids, my kids can read it to see uh, the difference between what I went through and what and the life that they are going through, which is totally different than what my experience. And so that was the reason I wrote it. So that so I, 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 uh, I wasn't thinking that way. Now that we're here, and I told you about the experience when the, uh, at the book signing, uh, certainly I'd, I'd like to entertain that. If somebody came to me and said they wanted to do that, I'd say, what do you sign? <laughs> well, the sad thing is, is that what would happen would be that they take your book, they make a screenplay out of it, and the and the writer, the screenplay writer, would make changes, and then the you know, director would get it, they would make changes, the producer would get it, they would make changes. So it would be great to have it be the book as you intended it. But I think I think it's great that you are uh, um, doing the saga for your kids because it's going to have a bigger impact than that, though. Because there are people that grew up in your time, um, people, to, kids today, people today don't recognize how different it was um, then than it is today. No, they don't. And, and, and part of the reason is that <clears throat> I remember having a, this discussion. I have a 22-year-old son. I, my kid, I have four kids and they range from 22 to 52. And, well, you were uh, busy late in life. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, they, 
they don't tend to read the news or watch the news. And they have so many, you know, when I grew up, we had three, two, and maybe sometimes three television stations. Right. Channel 2, Channel 13, and Channel 7, I think it was. And that was it. And the news was on twice a day, uh, yep. in the morning and in the afternoon. Now you got 24 hours of news on 20 channels. You've got uh, uh, all kind, 500 stations. You and, and and depending on your 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 background, you may be watching uh, Korean TV. You may be watching Persian TV. You may be watching Mexican or Hispanic TV. Uh, uh, so you have all of these choices. And we didn't have those choices then. So we we were all on the same page. We were all listening to the same news. Now the, everyone gets different news, different this, different that. So it's hard to get get the attention of everyone on the same page because there's so many options. Well, there was a, there was a time in this country in like 1962, 63, when I became aware of things that there was the news and Walt. Cronkite would create right. the news and he yeah. would talk about the news the way it is and the way it is right. and and now you've got so, what some people would say a caricature of the news because it's is there's so many talking heads doing so many different things and they're all after attention and they're all after clicks they're all after money and so the the purity of the news no longer exists the way it did back then Exactly. That's exactly correct. And uh, so everybody gets a different news. And, and they kind of, well, you know, in the case of some stations, I won't mention which, but I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. They cater the news to their, to their, to their audience, uh, telling them what they want to hear or, or uh, uh, reinforcing things that, that they want to hear rather than actual true news. You know, they, they, it's, a, it's a different ball game. And they cater sometimes to the lowest common denominator. Yes, hate, division, and fear, and it's always about uh, the dollars. Yes, no, which and, which produces the greatest revenue. Yes, yes, indeed. You know, I, by the way, again, we're talking with Dr. Otto E. Stallworth. Go to Otto E. Stallworth, uh, MD, June, or, dot com, and uh, you can buy the book there. He's got a blog. He's got events that you can uh, look into, and and his story is right there. Please. Please, this is an important. It's an important work. I think that it needs to be read by everybody because whether we want to admit it or not, uh, times were were not as they are today, and they were, it was difficult um, from from not being able to drink at the same watering uh, water fountain and not sitting at the counter to not being able to ride the bus to not being able to try on clothes, and if they don't fit, you still have to buy them. Yep. So, so you couldn't. So, it's 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 crazy. It's it's crazy. Um, and I want to thank you so much for being here. I want to have you back on one of the the radio shows that I do because I think your message is very very important. Will you come back and see me again? Sure, I sure will. Anytime, just let me know. I will talk to you. Michelle. Michelle is your agent. You're your your publicist, correct? Right. I will. I will talk to her, and I will. I will tell her that I'd love to to book you on. Of one of the radio shows because they're in Seattle and they're in the twelfth largest media market in the country, and I think that your story and not only your not specifically your story, but the times you lived in can't be forgotten in this country. I don't think because they were not they were not uh, they were you know you've got these <clears throat> got these people that say let's make America great again. Mm -hmm. Well. And they're talking about the 50s and 60s, and I'm here to tell you that I don't think that was all that great of a time for many people. You know, do you know that that was George Wallace's? Uh, oh no! <laughs> when he ran, are you serious? Really? George Wallace was governor for two terms, and then in 60, I believe it was 66, 67, he had his wife Lurleen run for governor and win, and of course he was actually still the governor. And then uh, I think it was 72 is when he ran for president and was doing uh, doing good before there was an attempt assassination that left him uh, paralyzed, quadriplegic, uh, paraplegic. And um, his motto was make America great again. So, you know, I, I had a, a conversation with um, 
someone about uh, about the, the the Trump thing running for president, and and they wanted to say he wasn't a racist. I said I don't know if he's a racist or not, but I think he uses it for whatever's convenient, whatever uh, reaction he can get. And and no one no one that I talked to, and you can check this out now for yourself, see if anyone else you know knows that Make America Great Again was George Wallace's campaign slogan. I've never heard that before. I'll have you can to Google that. it to make sure I'm right. You can Google it now. You can always, like nowadays, you can't say too many things that are wrong because people can Google to make sure that you're right or wrong. <laughs> That's right. But you can Google it and find that that was, a, that was his campaign slogan. So and he, he's, he's the one, he, and as you mentioned earlier, he was the one guy that said segregation now and segregation forever. And right. uh, he, was, he ran on a racist platform in 72. And, yes. Which was, by the way, what got him shot, I think. Yeah, well, we don't know. The, the, the person who shot him, we, he was, they made it sound like, I mean, if you can trust what the media reported, that he was just an arbitrary guy who just happened to just, shoot him. <laughs> yeah, just wandering around, wandering around. I think I'm going to go. Here he is. We'll pick out this guy. No. Yeah. So, doctor, thank you so much for being here. And I want to give you a moment before we go. I want you to be able to tell our audience anything that you feel important for them to know. I like to tell them uh, something I forgot to mention, and that is that uh, there's a story in my book. Uh, it's called Reverend John Wesley Rice, an unsung hero. And I will try to make this as brief as possible. But the reason John Reverend Rice, John Reverend John W. Rice, by the way, was was Condoleezza Rice's father. Oh. But when I graduated from high school, Condoleezza was in the second grade, so we we, we weren't friends or anything. I didn't really know her that at that time. But her father was my mentor. He was uh, 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 his church was on the corner from my house, but he also was a high school counselor, and he arranged for me. Uh, my family had no money to get me to college. I had good grades. He arranged for me to get a scholarship and a loan that saw, got that paid everything through four years of of undergrad and four years of med school. And because of that, I, I didn't, and I had forgotten that experience until I started writing the memoir. And as I wrote the memoir and, and was writing that story, I remember how he helped me. So I started a foundation a year ago in 2022 called the Stallworth OES, O-H-Y-E-S, OES Foundation, where I, uh, I um, um, where we provide scholarships. I can only afford two scholarships. We do a one four-year scholarship at Meharry Medical College, my alma mater, for a med student. And we do one four-year scholarship at, uh, at Howard University, uh, uh, my alma mater. And we hope to grow the foundation so we can supply more scholarships to help students who have the grades, have the determination, have the willpower and desire, but do not have the finances, do not have the money. Because that was my situation. So I'm trying, and the only thing I ask of those that receive the uh, scholarship is that they remember how they were helped and that they help someone when they're in a position to help. That's, that's really cool. That's really cool. Congratulations. And, and if somebody would like to donate to your to the foundation, how do they do that? You can go to Otto E. Stallworth Jr. MD.com. And on, on that website, there's a uh, uh, you'll see uh, something that says foundation, or you can click on Stallworth OES dot foundation, uh, uh, and that would take you to the to page on foundation. And the information is there about the foundation and how what we're trying to do and about the scholarships that we offer and uh, how to donate. Again, ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with. Uh, Dr. Otto E. Stallworth, and he's written the book, Are You a N-Word or a Doctor? Um, I, I can't bring myself to even say the word. Anyway, uh, but uh, are you an N-Word or a doctor? And get, get you can pick it up everywhere. It's been out since March. And uh, and go to Barnes & Noble. You can pick it up on the website. Uh, oh, by the way, the audio book is out, too. The audio book came out uh, a week ago. Oh, awesome. So now... Not on Amazon yet, but it's every place else. Is at Barnes and Noble. It's at uh, even at Walgreens. What they call Nooks is at uh, uh, Apple Books. 
it's every place except Amazon. It will be on Amazon. Amazon is a little slow posting the audiobooks, but it'll be on Amazon uh, soon. It's also on Spotify and it's on audiobooks.com. Now, who who voiced it for you? I had a man, I forget his last name, Preston, Preston uh, the third. Uh, I did the um, prologue and they wanted me to do the book because they said that uh, memoirs are usually done by the author. But um, <laughs> when I read the, uh, the, the, the prologue, and the prologue is two pages. It took me an hour to get that right, you know. Yep. It so, take it. Yep. So I, I don't, um, so I, I, I knew, and then I tried to read a chapter. Sorry about that noise. No, that's all right. You're a popular man. People are after you. They want to talk to you. <laughs> I, um, I, I read for, 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 uh, 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 what, an hour. And, you know, my Alabama accent comes out. I mispronounce words. I skip words. I do this. I do that. So I knew I couldn't read because they wanted, in order to do the book, I would have to do five days, five and a half hours a day for five days. And I, and I knew I couldn't, I didn't have the stamina for that. That's that's a that's a hard hard. I've done audiobooks and it's and it's hard. You and they have to have a um, an idea behind it and a cadence and be able to edit it and all that stuff. So anyway, yeah. but I'm glad it's out now and uh, and I want to thank you again for being on the show and we're going to invite you back. And so I'll be looking for that, ladies and gentlemen, on KKNW 11:50 a.m. And uh, um, Dr. Otto, if you'll stay right there, um, I'll be right back. Okay. Hey, thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of PositiveTalkRadio.net. Please visit our website, oddly named PositiveTalkRadio.net, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, Remember, be kind to one another because each other's all we got.